Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. What is so dangerous about a character like Ferris Bueller is he gives good kids bad ideas. Why should he get to skip school when everybody else has to go? Syphilitic meningitis. He never gets caught. This guy in my biology class said that if Ferris dies, he's giving his eyes to Stevie Wonder. Well, he's very popular, Ed. I recall Central Park in fall. Ferris Bueller, do you know him? Yeah, he's getting me out of summer school. They think he's a righteous dude. Think he'll be alive this weekend? I can see him denying popular beliefs, setting off on some impossible mission. Jeopardizes my ability to effectively govern this student body. He does whatever he wants. You know, as long as I've known him, everything works for him. Whatever he wants. He's very cool. And he never gets nailed. Ferris can do anything. Oh, he's such a sweet. Wake up and smell the coffee, Mrs. Bueller. It's a fool's paradise. He is just leading you down the primrose path. Matthew Broderick. Bueller. Ferris Bueller. Ferris Bueller's day off. Because life is too beautiful a thing to waste. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off from 1986. Now, like we did with the Footloose episode about a year ago, this is a crossover episode with my buddies from the Growing Up Rock podcast, Stephen Michael and Sonny Pooney. And what we're going to do on the Growing Up Rock podcast is talk about movies where certain scenes are synonymous with the songs playing. And Ferris Bueller has a number of those. So that's why we're talking about Ferris Bueller. And then a couple days after you hear this, go over to the Growing Up Rock podcast and check out our picks of films where the songs make such a difference. And when you hear a song, you immediately think of that scene in the movie. Okay, the studio was Paramount Pictures. The release date was June 11, 1986. The running time, 103 minutes, and was rated PG-13. The budget was $5 million, and the box office took in $70 million, making it the 10th-ranked movie of 1986. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 80% fresh from 71 reviews. Their critics' consensus is Matthew Broderick, Charms, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, a light and irrepressibly fun movie about being young and having fun. Roger Ebert at the time gave it three out of four stars. Here's his review. Here is one of the most innocent movies in a long time. A sweet, warm-hearted comedy about a teenager who skips school so he can help his best friend win some self-respect. The therapy he has in mind includes a day's visit to Chicago. And after we've seen the Sears Tower, the Art Institute, the Board of Trade, a parade down Dearborn Street, architectural landmarks, a Gold Coast lunch, and a game at Wrigley Field, We have to concede that the city and state film offices have done their jobs. If Ferris Bueller's Day Off fails on every other level, at least it works as a travel log. It does, however, work on at least a few other levels. The movie stars Matthew Broderick as Ferris, a bright high school senior from the North Shore who fakes an illness so he can spend a day in town with his girlfriend, Sloane, the astonishingly beautiful Mia Sarah, and his best friend, Cameron, played by Alan Ruck. 
There is one great dizzying moment where the teens visit the top of the Sears Tower and lean forward and press their foreheads against the glass and look straight down at the tiny cars and little specks of life far below and begin to talk about their lives. And that introduces subtly the buried theme of the movie, which is that Ferris wants to help Cameron gain self-respect in the face of his father's materialism. Ferris is, in fact, a bit of a preacher. He says life goes by so fast, if you don't stop and look around, you might miss it. He's sensitive to the hurt inside of his friend's heart, as Cameron explains how his dad has cherished and restored the red Ferrari and given it a place of honor in his life, a place denied to Cameron. Ferris Bueller was directed by John Hughes, the philosopher of adolescence, whose credit includes Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club, and Pretty in Pink. In all of his films, adults are strange, distant creatures who love their teenagers, but fail to completely understand them. That's the case here, all right. All of the adults, including a bumbling high school dean, played by Jeffrey Jones, are dim-witted and one-dimensional. And the movie's solutions to Cameron's problems are pretty simplistic. But the film's heart is in the right place. And Ferris Bueller is slight, whimsical, and sweet. And that's the end of Ebert's review. Ferris Bueller's Day Off is one of my favorite movies of all time, and I've watched it countless times. Whenever I was homesick from school as a kid, this always seemed to be the go-to movie that I would watch. It's a movie I never, ever get tired of watching. I know exactly what's going to happen, and the beat of each line delivered, and I enjoy it like it's the first time I saw it. This film was also the power of my parents' camcorder at the time when I was growing up, which was used as a dubbing station to record VHS films that we rented. John Hughes and his brilliant and creative movies are sorely missed in today's Hollywood. Okay, let's get into the making of the film. As I believe I mentioned in the past regarding John Hughes, the speed at which he could write scripts was truly amazing. The legend goes for Ferris Bueller, at the time there was a threat of a writer's strike, and in order to get the film greenlit before the potential strike, a producer really wanted to make the film with Hughes but told him that he would have to be able to come up with a script in under three weeks. Hughes said he had an idea and six to seven days later turned in the original script to Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Because Hughes was both a writer and director, he was able to quickly come up with ideas and tweaks on the fly during the shooting and also keep cohesion of the original script. This is a unique gift that many directors aren't able to pull off because they aren't as close to the script like Hughes was. Casting directors Jane Jenkins and Janet Hershenson immediately thought of Matthew Broderick to play their lead role of Ferris Bueller. The only other option that came to mind at the time was John Cusack, but they felt Broderick had the ability to balance the fine line of the Ferris character and not cross the line of being an obnoxious brat, which could happen if the wrong actor took the part. At the time, Broderick was working on Broadway with the play Biloxi Blues, which was later a feature film that starred him. This is when the Ferris script was sent to him. The only hesitation Broderick said he felt at the time about taking the Ferris part was that he was being typecast as a certain character. But ultimately, he loved how funny and original the script was, and of course he took the part. Ironically, Alan Ruck was also performing on Broadway with Matthew Broderick in Biloxi Blues. Originally, the casting directors didn't want to see Ruck because he was in his late 20s and far too old to be a high schooler. But Ruck's savvy agent mentioned that he performs next to Broderick every night on stage and they have a natural rapport and they were also friends offstage. Also, Ruck, like Broderick, looked younger than his age. John Hughes originally wanted Ruck to be part of the original Breakfast Club cast, so he already liked Ruck. Ruck auditioned for the role of John Bender in The Breakfast Club, which of course went to Judd Nelson. According to Ruck, Emilio Estevez and Anthony Michael Hall were asked or considered for the part of Cameron. 
John Hughes, when writing for the part of Sloane, which of course is Ferris's girlfriend, believed Ferris would choose a girl that was very elegant and restrained. He wanted a partner in crime of sorts, you know, a clever companion. And Sloane is basically Ferris's foundation. Mia Sarah was closer to the age of her part as Sloane, as she had just graduated high school. She also looked the role and was a natural beauty. Molly Ringwald, of course, a John Hughes staple, had also wanted to play the part of Sloane, but according to Ringwald, John just wouldn't let me do it. He said that the part wasn't big enough for me. So Hughes liked the trio dynamic because when he was growing up, it fit his dynamic with he and his wife and his often third-wheel friend, which was just like Cameron. And Hughes' wife would often be the sympathetic shoulder to cry on for John's third-wheel friend. Hughes ended up marrying his high school girlfriend. When Jennifer Grey walked in for her audition, the casting directors just knew she was Jeannie Buehler, without her even saying a word. But ironically, when Grey first read the script, she didn't get it. She didn't understand the long monologues from Ferris. So, without her even realizing it, her apathy initially to the part likely was exactly why she was perfect to play Ferris's miserable sister who never gets her own way. Also, when Grey first met John Hughes, she just immediately adored him and had an immediate connection with him. Now, for Ferris and Jeannie's parents, they were played by Lyman Ward and Cindy Pickett. Before filming began, they decided to meet on their own to get to know each other. And this turned into dating, before shooting even started. So even though it started innocently enough, simply to prepare for the roles, life imitates art. The two ended up marrying shortly after the film was released. They ended up having two children together, but divorced after six years of marriage. And while on the subject of relationships, Matthew Broderick and Jennifer Grey were dating in real life at the time. However, the couple was in a very serious car accident in 1987 during a rainstorm in Ireland. Broderick and Gray were injured, but two local women, a mother and daughter, were killed due to the crash. Gray suffered a few facial injuries and decided to have plastic surgery, most notably on her nose, which unfortunately ruined her career because she no longer looked like the actress that everyone knew on screen. Broderick and Gray broke up in 1988. In the film, there was really only one adult authority figure that was written by Hughes, and that's the Dean of Students, Ed Rooney. Rooney feels that Ferris getting away with everything will cause him to lose control of the student body because it's obvious Ferris has more influence than he does. And frankly, to have a great movie, you need a terrific villain. Without it, a movie just doesn't work, and Ed Rooney is a fabulous villain. And nobody could have played Rooney better than Jeffrey Jones. He truly is the essence of the character. John Hughes cast Jones based on his performance as the prince in the 1984 film Amadeus. To play Rooney's secretary Grace, the casting directors came across Edie McClurk's picture in their files and they just knew she was Grace, just by her look. McClurk came in for the audition and knew the film was going to take place in Chicago, and she decided that she would use a Midwestern accent in her audition. And in the famous scene where Grace explains what the various types of students love about Ferris, she ad-libbed and added at the end, they think he's a righteous dude, and that great Midwest accent. John Hughes cracked up because he didn't expect it, and he loved it. To play the part of the most boring, monotone teacher in history, John Hughes made the call immediately to Ben Stein. When Stein read the famous line of calling attendance of Bueller, Bueller, all the extras and crew burst out laughing. Hughes then asked Stein to improvise and come up with a quick lecture about a subject that he knew. Stein quickly decided to improvise a lesson about the Great Depression. After his audition on camera in one take, he got a standing ovation, which never happens. And with that, Stein was the boring teacher in the film. This was only the second movie he had ever been in, and he used that small role to create a whole career out of it, amazingly. 
For the role of the guy at the police station, Jennifer Grey had already been in a film with Charlie Sheen a few years prior with Red Dawn, and so she recommended him. And it's another memorable scene in a film full of memorable scenes. Sheen is so perfect in that role. Actors loved auditions with John Hughes because he gave them his full attention. He had countless stories he would share with actors and didn't treat auditions like cattle calls. Christy Swanson was originally hired for a very small part in the film, the part where Ferris talks to the girl on the phone at school when he's spreading the rumor that he's really sick and playing the noises on his synthesizer. This was supposed to be for Swanson. However, Hughes ended up shooting that with another actress. He apologized to Swanson, but ended up writing another scene specifically for her, which ended up being a famous scene where Ben Stein is giving the class attendance, and she has to explain the rumor about Ferris passing out at 31 Flavors the night before. Hughes just had an amazing imagination and could write incredibly quickly, as I mentioned before. Okay, let's get into the film. So thankfully, this is a film with tons of clips available for everyone to enjoy. So let's start from the beginning. Ferris? Tom! What's the matter? Oh, it's Ferris. What? What's wrong? What's wrong? For Christ's sake, look at him, honey. Ferris? He doesn't have a fever, but he says his stomach hurts and he's seeing spots. What's the matter, Ferris? Papa? Honey, feel his hands. They're cold and clammy. Mm. I'm fine. I get up. No. 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 I have a test today. No. I have to take it. I, I want to go to a good college so I can have a fruitful life. Annie, you're not going to school like this now. Oh, fine. What's this? What's his problem? He doesn't feel well. Yeah, right. Dry that one out. You can fertilize the lawn. Jeannie? Is that you? Jeannie? I can't see that far. Jeannie? Jeannie, I... Bite the big one, Junior. Thank you, Jeannie. You get to school. Wait, you're letting him stay home? I can't believe this. If I was bleeding out my eyes, you guys would make me go to school. This is so unfair. Jeannie, please don't be upset with me. You have your health. Be thankful. Oh. Mm. Oh. That's it. I want out of this family. I'm okay. <clears throat> I'll just sleep. Maybe I'll have an aspirin around noon. Now listen, I'm showing some houses to that, that family from Vermont today, so I'll be in the area now. My office will know just where I am if you need me, okay? Okay. okay. I'll check on you too, pal. It's, it's nice to know that I have such love and caring parents. You're both very special people. <laughs> I'll be home at six sharp. If you need anything, call. <laughs> I love you, sweetie. Call if you need us. They bought it. Incredible. One of the worst performances of my career, and they never doubted it for a second. 
How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? This is my ninth sick day this semester. It's getting pretty tough coming up with new illnesses. If I go for 10, I'm probably gonna have to barf up a lung. So I better make this one count. The key to faking out the parents is the clammy hands. It's a good non-specific symptom. I'm a big believer in it. A lot of people will tell you that a good phony fever is a dead lock, but uh, you get a nervous mother, you could wind up in a doctor's office. That's worse than school. You fake a stomach cramp, and when you're bent over, moaning and wailing, you lick your palms. It's a little childish and stupid, but then so is high school. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. I do have a test today. That wasn't bullshit. It's on European socialism. I mean, really, what's the point? I'm not European. I don't plan on being European. So who gives a crap if they're socialists? They can be fascist anarchists. It still wouldn't change the fact that I don't own a car. I recall Central Park in fall. How you tore your dress. What a mess, I confess. It's not that I condone fascism. Or anyism, for that matter. Isms, in my opinion, are not good. If a person should not believe in an ism, he should believe in himself. I quote John Lennon, I don't believe in Beatles, I just believe in me. A good point there. After all, he was the walrus. I could be the walrus. I'd still have to bum riots off of people. As we learn right off the bat, Ferris is a master of shortcuts. And he's also childlike, like he's putting his hair in a mohawk while showering. He's always one step ahead of everyone, and most importantly, everyone loves him, except Jeannie, his sister, who is played terrifically by Jennifer Grey. Also, Ferris's room is an 80s kid's dream, with all the posters of the era, along with the MTV commercial playing in the background. We also get some foreshadowing when Ferris is singing Donka Shane in the shower. John Hughes actually decorated the Ferris bedroom and modeled the style after his own bedroom growing up, where every inch of wall space was covered by music posters and pictures. In the original script, John Hughes had two other younger children in the family, with Jeannie being the middle child, which could explain a lot of her anger and aggression towards her parents and Ferris. We then cut to Ferris's school, where we get the most perfectly boring sounding teacher ever to appear on screen, as I mentioned, performed beautifully by Ben Stein. Adams. Here. Adam Lee. Here. Adamowski. Adamson. Here. Adler. Here. Anderson. Anderson. Here. Bueller. 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 Um, he's sick. My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows this kid is going with the girl who saw Ferris pass out at 31 Flavors last night. I guess it's pretty serious. Thank you, Simone. No problem whatsoever. Fry. Now, the constant repeating of Bueller has been used countless times when doing roll calls after this movie became part of the culture. And also, as I mentioned earlier, Chrissy Swanson plays the girl who gives the convoluted rundown of what happened to Ferris. Now, Fry is the last name of Cameron, played by Alan Ruck. 
This is Ferris's best friend, and he's a sheltered hypochondriac. He's the polar opposite of the outgoing and gregarious Ferris Bueller. Fry. Fry. Hello? Cameron, babe, what's happening? Very little. How do you feel? Shredded. Is your mother in the room? She's in Decatur. Unfortunately, she's not staying. Where are you? I'm taking the day off. Now get dressed and come on over. You can't stupid. I'm sick. That's all in your head. Come on over. I feel like complete shit, Ferris. I can't go anywhere. I'm sorry to hear that. Now come on over here and pick me up. You just can't think of anything good to do. If anybody needs a day off, it's Cameron. He has a lot of things to sort out before he graduates. Can't be wound up this tight and go to college. His roommate will kill him. When Cameron was in Egypt's land Let my Cameron go Pardon my French, but Cameron is so tight that if you stuck a lump of coal up his ass, in two weeks you'd have a diamond. So again, Cameron is based on one of John Hughes' friends in high school, who was sort of a lost person whose family neglected him, and he took this neglection as a license to pamper himself and was almost happier when he was physically ill, because then he didn't have to invent illnesses when he was being healthy. Ferris's mom, played by Cindy Pickett, is a successful realtor. While at her office, she gets a phone call from the dean of students, Ed Rooney, played by Jeffrey Jones, informing her that Ferris has been absent from school much more than she realized. Katie Bueller. This is Edward R. Rooney, dean of students. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I just completely forgot to call. Then you are aware that your son is not in school today. Yes, I am. Ferris is homesick. Now, I had a meeting first thing this morning. I know I should have called, but it, it just completely slipped my mind. I'm really very sorry. Are you also aware, Mrs. Bueller, that Ferris does not have what we consider to be an exemplary attendance record? I, I don't understand. He has missed an unacceptable number of school days. In the opinion of this educator, Ferris is not taking his academic growth seriously. Now, I've spent my morning examining his records. If Ferris thinks that he can just coast through this month and still graduate, he is sorely mistaken. I have no reservation whatsoever about holding him back another year. <laughs> this is all news to me. Usually is. So far this semester, he has been absent nine times. Nine times? Nine times. I don't remember him being sick nine times. That's probably because he wasn't sick. He was skipping school. Wake up and smell the coffee, Mrs. Bueller. It's a fool's paradise. He is just leading you down the primrose path. I can't believe it. I've got it right here in front of me. He has missed nine days.
I asked for a car, I got a computer. How's that for being born under a bad sign? Grace! Grace! <laughs> so while, while Rooney is yelling for his secretary, Grace, that's Edie McClurg, she's sniffing white out. Also, she's pulling multiple pencils out of her large bouffant hairdo, which Hughes actually came up with at the last minute when he saw McClurg's giant hairdo when she arrived on set. And if you couldn't tell by the clip, we see Matthew Broderick using computer hacking skills that he picked up in the movie War Games, I'm sure, in 1983 to adjust his number of absences from two instead of nine times. We then cut back to class to hear another lifeless lecture from Ben Stein. In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the, anyone, anyone, the Great Depression, passed the, anyone, anyone, the tariff bill, the Hawley-Smoot Tariff Act, which anyone raised or lowered, raised tariffs in an effort to collect more revenue for the federal government. Did it work? Anyone? Anyone know the effects? It did not work, and the United States sank deeper into the Great Depression. Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone seen this before? The Laffer Curve. Anyone know what this says? It says that at this point on the revenue curve, you will get exactly the same amount of revenue as at this point, this is very controversial. Does anyone know what Vice President Bush called this in 1980? Anyone? Something D-O-O economics. Voodoo economics. I will say, I always remember the term voodoo economics from this film. Therefore, I say, well done, Ben Stein, for teaching me about this. The looks on the faces of the students are absolutely priceless. There is absolute contempt for them being stuck in this lecture. So much better than the zombies today simply glued to their phones. Jeannie at school is becoming more and more disgusted by the outpouring of concern from all the students about Ferris's health. Word is spread quickly that Ferris could be seriously ill, all of which he, of course, plays up to the hilt. Please, do not yank my cord on this. How desperate is the situation? Well, did you see Alien? When that uh, creature was in that guy's stomach? It kind of feels like that. Freshman. God damn, are you kidding? No, of course I'm not kidding. Do I sound like I'm kidding? <coughs> Who's he talking to? Ferris Bueller, do you know him? Yeah, he's getting me out of summer school. We appreciate you letting us know how you're doing. We got a buzz. Keep it thought, dude. Thanks. <coughs> Shit, I hope he doesn't die. Can't handle summer school. Wait a minute, give me somebody else. Yeah, sure, hold on. You see Alien? Yeah, why? Hello? Hi. Hi, Ferris. How's your bod? <coughs> oh my god, you're dying? Uh-oh. <laughs> Is it serious? Uh, I don't know. I hope not. I think I may need a kidney transplant. Shit. Are you upset? <coughs> Excuse me. Think you'll be alive this weekend? Yeah, I'd say I will. Great. Maybe I'll see ya. Bye. <coughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> so as a kid, the coughing and hacking noises played by Ferris on his synthesizer always cracked me up. And by the way, the high school used in the film is the same one that was used for The Breakfast Club. Well, Ferris gets the entire school on his side. There's another person besides Jeannie that doesn't believe that Ferris is really sick, and that's Ed Rooney. I don't trust this kid any further than I can throw him. Well, with your bad knee, Ed, you shouldn't throw anybody. It's true. What is so dangerous about a character like Ferris Bueller is he gives good kids bad ideas. Uh-huh. Last thing I need at this point in my career is 1,500 Ferris Bueller disciples running around these halls. He jeopardizes my ability to effectively govern this student body. Well, makes you look like an ass is what he does, Ed. Thank you, Grace. I think you're wrong. Oh, well, he's very popular, Ed. The sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wasteoids, dweebies, dickheads. They all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. That is why I have got to catch him this time. To show these kids that the example he sets is a first-class ticket to nowhere. Oh, Ed, you sounded like Dirty Harry just then. Really? Uh-huh. <laughs> Edie McClure is so good as the ditzy secretary, Grace. One of the brilliant things that John Hughes did with Rooney's desk chair that nobody will notice usually is that it's lower than normal chairs. So you'll notice that Grace almost towers over him. Subconsciously, the viewer sees Rooney as someone that nobody respects. He's just a blowhard. He's a little man. So Ferris is all ready to enjoy his day off, but Cameron just won't play along, which leads to another very quotable scene. I'm serious, man. This is ridiculous, making me wait around the house for you. Why can't you let me rot in peace? Cameron, this is my ninth sick day. If I get caught, I won't graduate. I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing it for you. Do you know what my diastolic is? Be a man. Take some Pepto-Bismol, get dressed, and come on over here. I'm tired of this stuff. Oh, shut up. Hold, hold, hold your water for a second. I got another call. Hello? Ferris! Uh, hi. You sound terrible. Really? Darn. I thought I was improving. Were you sleeping? Dad, can you hang on for a second? Sure, pal. Hang on. Cameron, it's my dad. Oh, great. Keep me out of it. If you're not over here in 15 minutes, you can find a new best friend. <laughs> You've been saying that since the fifth grade. Dad? Yeah? All this talking has made me kind of lightheaded. I think I ought to lie down. Take a hot bath and then uh, wrap a hot towel around your head. Wrap a hot towel around my head? And then make yourself some soup. Get a nap. Okay? Okay. Hey, Ferris? Yeah. Love you, pal. I love you, too. I'm so disappointed in Cameron. 20 bucks says he's sitting in his car debating about whether or not he should go out. He'll keep calling me. He'll keep calling me until I come over. He'll make me feel guilty. This is, uh, this is ridiculous, okay? I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, with, I'll go. Shit.
I don't know how many times I'll say, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, shit. <laughs> but I do it all the time. And the tantrum of Cameron hitting his car seat and jumping up and down in the background is so funny. Also, the Detroit Red Wings jersey featuring hockey legend Gordy Howe is another iconic piece of fashion in this film. Hughes actually picked up the jersey because Howe was Hughes' sports hero when he was growing up in Detroit. Not to be outdone, we have another super boring teacher to watch as Ferris's girlfriend Sloane, played by Mia Sarah, tries not to fall asleep in class. In what way does the author's use of the prison symbolize protagonist's struggle and how does this relate to our discussion of the uses of irony uh, mr Norman, may i interrupt please uh sloan peterson may i have a word with you dear so the nurse informs Sloane that her grandmother just passed away. We have to assume that Sloane is part of the setup because when the school nurse entered the classroom, Sloane perked up and put on her jacket. The news of Sloane's dead grandmother also sounds fishy to Rooney, which leads to one of my favorite scenes in the film. Dead grandmother? Yes, that's what Mr. Peterson said. I had Florence Sparrow notify Sloane. Poor little lamb. Who's this girl going out with? so hard to tell these days. I do see her with Ferris Bueller quite a little bit. Would you get me Mr. Peterson's daytime number, please? Sure. Ed Rooney's office. This is George Peterson. Oh, uh, please hold. Well, you know, it's Mr. Peterson. Do you still want his daytime number? Ed Rooney. Ed, this is George Peterson. How are you today, sir? Well, we've had a bit of bad luck this morning, as you may have heard. Yeah, I heard, and oh, I'm all broken up. Boy, what a blow. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it's been a tough morning, and uh, we've got a lot of family business to take care of, so if you wouldn't mind excusing Sloan, I'd uh, appreciate it. Well, uh, sure. Yo, I'd be happy to. Yeah, you, uh, you, you just produce a corpse, and uh, I'll release Sloan. I want to see this dead grandmother firsthand. Ed. It's all right, Grace. It's Ferris Bueller, little twerp. I'm going to set a trap and let him fall right into it. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Ed, I'm, I'm sorry. Did, did you say you wanted to see a body? Yeah, that's right. Just uh, roll her old bones on over here, and I'll dig up your daughter. You know that school <laughs> policy. Oh? Uh, was this your mother? Uh, no, my wife's mother. Ed Rooney's office. Hi, this is Ferris Bueller. Can I speak to Mr. Rooney, please? Thank you. Uh, hold. I'll tell you what, dipshit. You don't like my policies, you can just come on down here and smooch my big old white butt. Pucker up, Buttercup. What? Ferris 
Spieler's online too. Hey, Mr. Rooney, how you doing? Listen, uh, I'm sorry to disturb you at work, but I'm not feeling very well today. And I was wondering if it might be possible for my sister to bring home any assignments for my classes that I might need. Have a nice day. <coughs> Mr. Peterson? Um, uh, no, I, I, I think I owe you an apology, sir. Well, I should say you do. I, uh, I, I, I... Well, I think you should be sorry, for Christ's sake. A family member dies, and you insult me. What the hell is the matter with you, anyway? Uh, 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 well, uh, I, I, I really don't know, sir. I mean, I, I, I didn't think I was talking to you. I thought I was talking to somebody else. You know, sir, that I would never deliberately insult you like that. I, I, I can't begin to tell you how embarrassed I am. What do you want? Pardon my French, but you're an asshole. Asshole! Uh, you're absolutely right, sir. You've hit the nail right in the head. Find out where she is. This isn't over yet, Buster. Do you read me? Uh, loud and clear, Mr. Peterson. Call me sir, goddammit. Yes, 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 sir, yes, sir. That's better. <laughs> you just mind your P's and Q's, Buster, and remember who you're dealing with. Bueller. Ferris Bueller. No, I'm, I'm a little scared, because what, what if he recognizes my voice? Impossible. You're doing great. Yeah. She's in. Wait. Rooney? Oh. Oh. Rooney, calm down. Oh, uh, just about the... Oh. Uh, just a, a little uh, office difficulty, sir. Rooney, I don't have all day to bark at you, so I'm going to make this short and sweet. I want my daughter out in front of the school in 10 minutes by herself. I don't want anybody... What? It's too suspicious he'll think something's up. Cover it. You talk. You talk. Come on. Three or six. Talk. No. Ronnie! Uh, Ronnie! Yes, yes. Listen here, pay attention. I changed my mind. I want you out in front of the school with her. I'd like to have a few words with you, by God. On second thought, we don't have time to talk right now. We'll get together soon and we'll have lunch. Ow! Best. What the hell is wrong with you? Wait! Wait! Where's your brain? Why'd you kick Where's me? Where's your brain? Why'd you kick me? Where's your brain? I asked you first. How can we pick up Sloane if Rooney is there with her? I said for her to be there alone and you freaked. The voice that Cameron uses to play George Peterson is so perfect and hilarious. Call me, sir, God damn it! <laughs> that voice that Alan Ruck uses is an impression of a director he used to work with on a play, and it was sort of an inside joke between him and Matthew Broderick. And the frantic back and forth between Jeffrey Jones and Edie McClurg is so great to watch, and it was all shot in one take. So while Cameron did an amazing job freaking out Rooney, Ferris threw Cameron off, and the two have a minor argument, and Cameron threatens to go back home. Interestingly, Cameron can really only assert himself when he's playing a character, like in the phony phone call to Rooney. Ferris convinces Cameron not to go home and also convinces Cameron for another major item.
last clip we also hear the unofficial theme song of the film oh yeah by the band yellow hughes had wanted to use this song for a few years but he couldn't find the right spot for it and of course now it's synonymous with ferris bueller for all eternity but it's also used in other 80s movies like secret of my success which happened a year later with michael j fox and as a viewer i think we can believe that deep down cameron really wanted ferris to take the car because he could never do it himself so now it's time to pick up sloan Again, let me tell you how deeply saddened I am by your loss. I, uh, I had a grandmother once. Uh, two, actually. Deficit. Who will have to pay that eventually? Anyone? Anyone know? Man that is born of woman hath but a short time to live and is full of misery. He cometh up and is cut down like a flower. He fleeth as if it were a shadow and never continueth in one stay. Between grief and nothing, I'll take grief. Great. Oh, Sloan, dear. Hurry along now. I guess that's my dad. You gotta go. Mr. Rooney, Ed, you're a beautiful man. Thank you. 
I want to thank you for your warmth and compassion. Higher what rates? Anyone? Higher marginal rates on your taxes. Any questions so far? Shit. Hi. Do you have a kiss for daddy? Are you kidding? is in their family. Hi, Cameron. You comfortable? Hi, Sloan. No. <laughs> what are we gonna do? The question isn't what are we going to do. The question is what aren't we going to do. Don't say we're not gonna take the car home. Please don't say we're not gonna take the car home. Please don't say if you had access to a car like this, would you take it back right away? Neither would I. love that carefree woo convertible scenes from the 80s and the terrific use of the song beat city by the flower pot men as the trio drive to downtown chicago in the very rare red ferrari and you couldn't tell by just the audio of the last clip but genie saw the whole pickup scene as ferris dressed up in a british style overcoat and hat and if you never noticed the license plate for the ferrari are the letters n-r-v-o-u-s nervous pretty fitting from someone related to cameron Back at school, we get another priceless line as a kid from Ferris's school tries to collect donations to save Ferris. I'm sorry? You should be. Hey! 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 What if you need a favor someday from Ferris Bueller? Then where will you be, huh? You heartless wench! <laughs> Genie knocking the Pepsi can full of change out of the guy's hand is so great, you heartless wench. After seeing the Peterson Ferrari speed away, Rooney suspects that something is still off and decides to do some investigating off campus to see if he can catch Ferris skipping school. In the meantime, the trio arrive in Chicago and leave the rare Ferrari at a parking garage. Ferris and Sloan, of course, thinking nothing of it, it's not their car, but Cameron is rightfully worried. Wrong. What? Not here. We're not leaving the car here. Why not? Because we're not. I want the car back home where it belongs, right now. Come on, let's go. Cameron, what's gonna happen to it? It's in a garage. It could get wrecked, stolen, scratched, breathed on wrong. A pigeon could shit on it, who knows? Listen, will you calm down, please? I'm gonna give the guy a fiver to watch it. Look at it. Hey, how you doing? You speak English? 
Uh, what country do you think this is? Okay, listen, uh, I want you to take extra special care of this vehicle, okay? Hey, no problem. Great. Trust me. Sir. Come on. Come. I'm nothing to worry about. I'm a professional. Professional what? See what a Finsky can do to a guy's attitude? Cameron, come on. Well, Cameron's instincts were correct. As the three blissfully walk away in the streets of Chicago, in the background, we see the garage attendant and his buddy speed away in the Ferrari. Back at the Bueller home, Ferris's mom goes to check on Ferris, and we see the most elaborate setup in Ferris's bedroom, which includes a mannequin laying in the bed connected with wire and a pulley system to the doorknob. Also, the stereo is playing sound effects of snoring. So his mom peeks in and is pleasantly convinced about Ferris sleeping and then leaves. One of the first stops for the trio is the Sears Tower, and then the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, where commodities are traded, and Ferris randomly decides to propose to Sloane. You want to get married? Sure. Today? I'm serious. <laughs> I'm not getting married. Why not? Why do you mean, why not? Think about it. Well, no. Besides being too young, having no place to live, you feeling a little awkward about being the only cheerleader with a husband. Give me one good reason. Why not? I'll give you two good reasons why not. My mother and my father. They're married and they hate each other. You've seen them, am I right? So what? Well, it's like that car. He loves the car. He hates his wife. All the while, Cameron makes water-dripping noises with his cheek, so while Sloane is rational enough to laugh off Ferris's proposal, there's a nice callback at the end of the film about this subject. that You'll just have to watch the film to recognize it. Next, they head to a fancy restaurant, and Ferris again works his magic. Please get the hell out of here. This place gives me the creeps. Why did she tell me to come to it? Hello, may I help you? You can sure as hell try. Hi, I'm Abe Froman. Party of three for 12. Is there a problem? You're Abe Froman. That's right, I'm Abe Froman. The sausage king of Chicago. Yeah, that's me. Listen, young man. Entre nous, I'm very busy here. Why don't you take the kids and go back to the clubhouse? Are you suggesting that I'm not who I say I am? I'm suggesting that you leave before I have to get snooty. Snooty? Snotty. Snotty? Okay, Abe. <laughs> Let's go. No, I'm not going anywhere. No, we like to be seated. Listen, young man, either you take the field trip outside or I'm going to have to call the police. 
The pol- You're gonna call the police on me? Yes. Fine. As a matter of fact, I'll call them myself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> call the police. <sighs> this will be a hoot. Give me the phone. I have another call. Huh. I've had enough of this horsing around. Give me the phone back. You touch me, I yell rat. There's another phone around here somewhere. Find it. Wonderful. I weep for the future. Okay, Ferris, can we just let it go, please? Ferris, please. Come on, too far. You're going to get busted. A, you can never go too far. B, if I'm gonna get busted, it is not gonna be by a guy like that. Come on, Abe. Ask for Abe Froman. Shaky, bonjour. Can I speak to Abe Froman? The sausage king of Chicago? Abe Froman? Let me check the restaurant. Could you describe him for me, please? Leather jacket? White t-shirt, sweater vest? Devastatingly handsome. Hold on one moment. Yes, thank you. Mr. Froman, this is Sergeant Peterson, Chicago Police. I actually own a Abe Froman Sausage King of Chicago t-shirt. I love that Cameron uses his standard crank call voice for everything. Also, there was a scene shot at the restaurant and cut out where instead of admitting that they ordered incorrectly, they find out that they ordered pancreas in which they simultaneously spit out whatever they have in their mouths into their napkins. Back at school, Jeannie is trying to figure out what to do about Ferris. Hello, Jeannie. Who's bothering you now? Is Mr. Rooney in? No, I'm sorry. He's not. Can I help you? I seriously doubt it. When's he back? I don't know. He's left the school grounds on personal business. What's that supposed to mean? Well, I suppose it means it's personal and it's none of your business, young lady. <sighs> nice attitude. Isn't Mrs. Hagel expecting you in consumer ed class? Probably. <sighs> what a little asshole. At the restaurant, the trio avoid being seen by Ferris's dad as they hop into a taxi while he chats with a few business colleagues. After a close call there, Rooney is off campus trying to find Ferris. As is the case with everything that Rooney does, his efforts fail as he enters a pizza parlor with his flip-down sunglasses. Rooney sees a person from behind that is about Ferris's height and wearing a similar outfit who's playing video games. However, when the person turns around after he says, "'Your ass is mine,' turns out it's a woman with short hair and she proceeds to spit soda through a straw on Rooney's face. Not done making a complete fool of himself, Rooney tries to chat up the counter guy about the Cubs game played on TV and you get to hear the great Cubs broadcaster Harry Carey. Runner at first base, nobody out. That's the first hit they've had since the fifth inning. Only the fourth hit in the game. Oh and two the count. There's a drive, left field, twisting, and into foul territory. Boy, I'm, I'm really surprised they didn't go for it in that inning. Lee Smith. What's the score? Nothing, nothing. Who's winning? The Bears. There's the ball, button foul back to the screen. Boy, I don't know. 
think I broke my thumb. Hey, bada 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 bada, so win, bada. Hey, damn it. Do you realize if we played by the rules right now, we'd be in gym? In addition to the great Hey Batter Batter from Ferris and Cameron, Rooney just missed seeing Ferris catch a foul ball on television. And outside the stadium, the message of Save Ferris appears on the entrance of the Wrigley Field message board. By the way, John Hughes was actually a White Sox fan, not a Cubs fan, but the Sox weren't in town when they were shooting, so they settled on the Cubs. And frankly, Wrigley Field is one of the most iconic stadiums in sports history, so it fit better anyway. Rooney decides to go directly to the Bueller home to see if Ferris is there. And frankly, that should have been Rooney's first stop, but it's Ed Rooney and he's a moron. Ferris has, of course, rigged the doorbell to play a recording, which only works if the person at the door leaves immediately after. David Ferris, come down here. You can reach my parents at their places of business. Thank you for stopping by. <laughs> I appreciate your concern for my well-being. I am not leaving till you come down and talk to me, Ferris. Have a nice day. You're in big trouble, Buster. Get down here. Ferris. Ferris! decides to snoop around the house and it's one blunder after another like slipping his leg into mud on the side of the house but back in chicago the two parking attendants are driving like maniacs in the prize ferrari while the star wars theme plays we cut back to the Bueller home and the family dog decides to attack rooney and take a chunk out of his ankle after rooney tries to enter the house through the dog door we then get a montage of Ferris, Sloan, and Cameron at the art museum while an instrumental of Please Please Let Me Get What I Want plays, originally done by the Smiths. This was one of John Hughes's favorite places to go when he was growing up, the art museum, and he focused on his favorite paintings in the film. <laughs> <laughs> 
At the end of the scene, it's memorable as Cameron stares deeply into a pointist-style painting. According to Hughes, this particular painting was sort of like making a film. You really don't see the painting as a whole until you step back from it. If you stare too close, it just looks like a blob of dots. Cameron is also sort of lost while looking at the painting, just kind of like his life. After the museum, they are stuck in traffic while in a taxi, and Cameron is his usual mopey self, until they notice that Ferris's dad is in another taxi directly across from them. It's getting late, buddy. We better go get the car back home. What? what do you, we have a few hours. We have until six. I'm sorry. I mean, I know you don't care, but it does mean my ass. You think I don't care? I know you don't care. <gasps> oh, that hurts, Cameron. Cameron, what have you seen today? Nothing good. <laughs> nothing, no, nothing, this, what do you mean nothing good? We've seen everything good, we've seen the whole city. Uh-oh. We went to a museum, we saw priceless works of art, we ate, we ate pancreas. So, what? What's wrong? What's over there? doing? He's licking the glass and making obscene gestures with his hands. What? (laughs) 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 Ferris's father shakes his head as Sloan laughs hysterically, seemingly for no reason as Ferris tickles her while hiding on the floor of the taxi. After another close call with Ferris's dad, Ferris pulls off his greatest stunt ever at a parade downtown. He didn't leave. He's probably doing something. No, it really busts my hump, you know? Aw, oh, Cameron, he didn't ditch us or anything. He's here. Hey, He's for here. all we know, he went back to school. He would probably not go back to school. Home. Yeah, he'd do it. He'd just no, do it just to make not. me sweat. Cameron, come on. Makes me mad. Ladies and gentlemen... You're such a wonderful crowd. We'd like to play a little tune for you. It's one of my personal favorites. And I'd like to dedicate it to a young man who doesn't think he's seen anything good today. Cameron Fry, this one's for you. You know, as long as I've known him, everything works for him. 
There's nothing he can't handle. I can't handle anything. School, parents, the future. Ferris can do anything. I don't know what I'm gonna do. College. Yeah. But to do what? What are you interested in? Nothing. Me neither. I'll be the shame. You're the shame. You're crazy! What do you think Ferris is gonna do? It's gonna be a Yes, I've told this story before in past episodes, but when I was a kid, I actually thought Matthew Broderick was singing Twist and Shout, of course, to the amusement of my father who informed me about a little-known group called the Beatles. Now, keep in mind, I was eight or nine at the time, and this was very pre-internet. So, of course, this scene had to take a nod from the Blues Brothers and the Ray Charles scene with all the group dancing. Also, John Hughes, growing up, thought Donka Shane was one of the worst songs ever. It was just so obnoxious to him, which is why it's used so much in the film. Also, that parade was real. It was the Von Steuben German American Day Parade, and the organizers agreed to have it be part of the film, which is why it looks authentic. And it was really nerve-wracking, especially for Matthew Broderick, because he had to get all of his takes right, because he only had a limited amount of time to film them. Also, Broderick was recovering from a knee issue on which he had surgery on a few years prior. So a lot of the original choreography didn't really happen because he was limited in his mobility. But, of course, he pulled it off perfectly. During the parade, several of the people seen dancing, including the construction worker and the window washer, originally had nothing to do with the film. They were simply just dancing to the music being played, and John Hughes found it so humorous they told the camera operators to record it. Paul McCartney, after... The movie was released, said he wasn't too thrilled with the addition of horns in the song used in the film, and said if the Beatles thought horns would have sounded good in the songs, they would have included it originally. Hughes was actually apologetic, since it wasn't his intention to ruin the song, but he felt it fit the parade vibe at the time, since a parade band would have been playing along to the song. That being said, because of the film, Twist and Shout ended up back on the charts again, and gained many new young fans like myself that hadn't really heard the Beatles before. So we go back to Ed Rooney as he accepts a flower delivery, and for whatever reason, the dog ends up passing out from the flowers, and to this day, I still don't get it, but it moves the plot along in order to get Rooney inside the house. However, he didn't expect the other viewer kid to arrive home. Both Jeannie and Rooney think each other is Ferris, which leads to one of the greatest high kicks ever to the face. Well, where is she? Look, this is her daughter. Well, do you know where she is? 
Do you know when she'll be back? Do you know anything? phone call. There is an intruder, male, Caucasian, possibly armed, certainly weird, in my kitchen. Yeah, my, 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 my name's Bueller. Look, it's real nice that you hope my brother's feeling better, but I'm in danger, okay? I am very cute, I am very alone, and I'm very protective of my body. I do not want it violated or killed, all right? I need help. Speaking of English... Excuse me. Oh. Whoever's in the house is still in the house. I'd like you to know that I've just called the police. So if you have any brains whatsoever, you'll get your ass out of my house real quick. I'd also like to add that I have my father's gun and a scorching case of herpes. Hey, wait, wait, wait! That's my car! I'll move it! I'm wearing keys! You shit it! The scorching case of herpes line and Rudy yelling at the tow truck driver. Oh, it's all priceless. The trio pick up the Ferrari from the garage and all seems perfect in the world. Even Cameron's having a good time. But, of course, that is short-lived. miles did you say this thing had on it when we left? 126 and halfway between three and four tenths. Why? How many miles are on it now? Here's where Cameron goes berserk. May very well be for real. I think Cameron might have blown a microchip or two. He's always been a little keyed up. All I wanted to do was give him a good day. 
We're gonna graduate in a couple of months, and then we'll have the summer. He'll work, and I'll work. We'll see each other at night and on the weekends. Then he'll go to one school, and I'll go to another. Basically, that will be it. Sloane's his bigger problem. She still has another year of high school. How do I deal with that? I was serious when I said I would marry her. I would. Cameron? Cam? Can you hear me? Cameron? Blink if you understand me. Cameron has never been in love. At least nobody's ever been in love with him. If things don't change for him, he's gonna marry the first girl he lays. And she's gonna treat him like shit. Because she will have given him what he has built up in his mind as the end-all be-all of human existence. She won't respect him. Because you can't respect somebody who kisses your ass. Just doesn't work. We better try something else. This isn't working. You feeling any better, Cameron? Cam? Why don't you come in here? It's really nice. Cameron, I could flip out real easy, too. It's okay. Sooner or later, everybody goes to the zoo. Maybe he's really sick. Maybe he isn't just torturing himself. Kidding? Oh, wow, that's pretty impressive, oh, man. You bitch. <laughs> oh, you son of a bitch. Get him. Come on. Toss him. Well, finally, Cameron gets one over on Ferris. By the way, the parking garage guys drove over 150 miles in the car. And what's interesting about the Ferris character is he isn't necessarily virtuous. He doesn't like having the tables turned onto him. And so while he loves Cameron like a brother, he can't handle it when Cameron one-ups him. And frankly, Ferris deserves to be knocked down a peg from time to time. I guess we all do, right? In the meantime, Jeannie was arrested for making a phony phone call about the home intruder. 
and we get another amazing scene with Charlie Sheen in a role that probably wasn't far off from the downward spiral he experienced almost 25 years later. Drugs. Thank you. No, I'm straight. I meant, are you in here for drugs? Why are you here? Drugs. I don't know why I'm here. Why don't you go home? Why don't you put your thumb up your butt? You wear too much eye makeup. My sister wears too much. People think she's a whore. You don't want to talk about your problem? With you, are you serious? I'm serious. Blow yourself. All right. You want to know what's wrong? I know what's wrong. Just want to hear you say it. In a nutshell, I hate my brother. How's that? That's cool. Did you blow him away or something? No, not yet. See, I went home to confirm that the shithead was ditching school, and when I was there, a guy broke into the house. I called the cops, and they picked me up for making a phony phone call. What do you care if your brother ditches school? Why should he get to ditch when everybody else has to go? You could ditch. Yeah, I'd get caught. Nice. So you're pissed off because he ditches and doesn't get caught, is that it? <clears throat> Basically. Basically. And your problem is you. Excuse me? Excuse you. You ought to spend a little more time dealing with yourself. A little less time worrying about what your brother does. That's just an opinion. Mm. What are you, a psychiatrist? No. Why don't you keep your opinions to yourself? Somebody you should talk to. If you say Ferris Bueller, you lose a testicle. Oh, you know him. To me. I mean, first of all, I don't know why she wasn't in school. And second of all, I, I just can't believe she came to you with a story about an intruder. Well, for whatever reason she did it, I think she's had a pretty good scare. Well, I really appreciate your calling me, really. I can assure you that her father and I are going to have a long talk with her when we get home. Thank you so much. Oh, by the way, I hope your son is feeling better. I beg your pardon? Tell him all the guys at the station here are pulling for him, hmm? Oh, right. <clears throat> I don't hide me, young lady. I want to get out of here now, all right? Okay. No, now. Let's get out of here. Oh, okay. Okay? Yes. Now. Fine. Okay. <laughs> She's a... 
just a little hyper. <laughs> uh, uh, let's not ruin this without a talk, all right? Okay. You didn't tell me your name. Oh, well, it's it's Jean, but uh, a lot of, a lot of guys call me Shauna. Okay, Jean. <laughs> That's great. Um, Everything about that last scene is priceless, and Sheen plays it perfectly against Gray's furious attitude. So Charlie Sheen stayed awake for 48 hours straight to get the tired, drugged-out look he had in the film. And again, this little meeting for Jeannie, or Shauna, comes into play at the end of the film. Now, I realize that many have seen this film, but for the few that haven't, I won't spoil the ending because there are some very crazy twists that do occur. And so you'll have to find out if Ferris will finally not have everything go perfectly for him. You're just going to have to watch and find out. But I will leave you with this, one of the first after credit scenes that are now so commonplace in films. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go. All right, some fun facts. So the real 1961 Ferrari was at the time worth over $350,000. Now it's worth well over a million. So there's no way the studio could even afford the insurance of having the car being driven for the film. However, a real one was used for the up-close shots in the garage. So replica kit cars were made for the film. So the body was the kit while the chassis was a Mustang. There were three made for driving, one that Ferris, Cameron, and Sloan rode around in. The other was souped up for the parking attendants of Vetcher around Chicago. And then basically a shell car, which was used for the famous final scene. All right, here is one spoiler, so if you haven't seen the film, sorry. But for the scene where the Ferrari goes crashing into the ravine, it was done using a truck pulley system that quickly jerked the car backwards out the garage glass. It wasn't really the car going in reverse on its own. It was being pulled. Now, there was a plot point in the film where Ferris called into a radio show saying that he was going to be going into space. However, before the preview trailer was released, the tragic Challenger shuttle explosion occurred, and Paramount requested that all mentions of space travel be removed from the film. Another plot point that was cut out involved the tow truck company that towed Rooney's car, which was owned by the family of Charlie Sheen's character, who was given the name Garth Volbeck. Ferris and Garth were friends in eighth grade. Garth had a terrible home life, and Ferris tried to help him out and be his friend, but Garth eventually dropped out of high school and wound up in the police station next to Jeannie. And that's why Ferris is so intent on giving Cameron a good time. He blames himself for not helping Garth enough when he could. Interesting backstory. The shot of Ferris playing the clarinet was done on the spot. Someone spotted the instrument as part of the set, and Matthew Broderick said he could play it, which, of course, he couldn't. After working together on Weird Science back in 1985, John Hughes offered Bill Paxson the role of the garage attendant. However, Paxson turned it down because he felt the role was too small. He later admitted they regretted turning it down because Hughes never offered him another role again. So because I'm a huge baseball fan and I love history, duh, look at the podcast, the Cubs game that is shown on the TV at the pizza parlor was actually June 5th, 1985 against the Atlanta Braves. The Braves actually won the game 4-2 in extra innings. 
The Braves shortstop at the time, Rafael Ramirez, hit a two-run homer in the 11th inning off the closer for the Cubs, Lee Smith. And to show how much baseball has changed in 30 years, the Cubs starting pitcher, Scott Sanderson, pitched the first 10 innings of the game before Lee Smith came in for relief. That's like two starts combined for starters today, sadly. And third baseman, Ron Say, hit a home run for the Cubs for the other home run of the day. So... That was the TV game, but for the actual game that Ferris, Cameron, and Sloan attended at Wrigley Field, that was three months later on September 24th against the Montreal Expos. So the reason the viewer is confused between the Braves and the Expos is because both of their road uniforms back in 1985 had a light powder blue color to them. Now, the September 24th game was a crazy game, and the wind must have been blowing out in Wrigley Field because the Expos beat the Cubs 17-15. to It was like a football game. Andre Dawson, who was on the Expos at the time and would later sign with the Cubs in 1987, he hit three home runs in that game for the Expos. So First Lady Barbara Bush paraphrased the film in her 1990 commencement address at Wellesley College. And she said, find the joy in life because, as Ferris Bueller said on his day off, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. Responding to the audience's enthusiastic applause, she added, I'm not going to tell George you clap more for Ferris than you clap for George. So in 1990, there was a TV series adaptation created based on the film. Only one season and 13 episodes were shot, and it was aired on NBC. And the reason this is notable is because Jeannie Bueller, that character, was played by a very young Jennifer Aniston, pre-Friends fame. All right, I don't think I need to tell you, but if you have never seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, it's an all-time classic. It's one of the best comedies ever made, so check that out. And hope you enjoyed this. And so, also, you can enjoy hearing the thoughts of Growing Up Rocks, Sonny Pooney, and Stephen Michael. So I'm going to talk to them now. And then, after you're done listening to this, head on over to the Growing Up Rock podcast and check out our latest episode where we talk about songs that make a film so much better and the scenes. When you hear a song, you immediately think of those scenes. So we talk about those picks. I have a ton of extras. <laughs> so that's why they had me on. And our lists are very good and very diverse. I go more the historical route and they went more towards personal favorites. So that's fine. And I think that's fun. I think you'll enjoy it because they put on a great podcast and they're very enjoyable to listen to. And I'll be back next week to talk about yet another random movie from my DVD collection. Okay, we're back, and we're going to do another crossover episode like I teased, just like we did with Footloose. We bring back the guys from the Growing Up Rock podcast, Stephen Michael and Sonny Pooney, and we're going to discuss an all-time 80s classic, and that's Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Welcome back, guys. Hey, hey. How's it going, Brian? I think you just got a uh, an inkling of how the mind melt works at Growing Up Rock earlier. <laughs> I did, and it's always a good thing, and... Uh, I, Steven reached out with a great idea where he was like, you know, I'm thinking of, of music and iconic scenes in films, or at least our favorite scenes, where a particular scene is enhanced by whatever music may may occur in that particular scene. And so we were trying to figure out certain movies that I already had ready that that kind of fixed this bill. And Ferris Bueller is actually one of them, and we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, but first, I'm going to ask Steven, do you, did you see this in the theater when it first came out, or what was the first time uh, you saw this? Yeah, I did see it in the theater. I mean, for me, uh, John Hughes is definitely in that bang zone of my growing up years, right? My high school years where uh, I was a huge John Hughes fan. So probably pretty much the bulk of his most famous movies I saw in the theater. Okay. How about you, Sonny? Yeah, this is one of the first movies I ever saw. So the first movie I ever saw was Top Gun. 
Mm-hmm. I think this might be two or three after that. Wow. So, so you went from you saw two of the most iconic movies of the 80s. Back, yeah, well, back. I graduated high school in 86, right? So movies were uh-huh. hot. Yeah, yeah. So you guys are both John Hughes fans. Where does Ferris rank in your favorite John Hughes movies? And that can include the ones he wrote as well. For me, it's number one. There, Nothing touches it, and it crosses over to my kids, my wife. Like, anybody you talk to that has seen the movie says they love it. So it's mm-hmm. one of those movies that lasts forever, right? So for me, it's number one. Okay. How about you, Steven? It's really a hard question for me and one that I don't, I'm not even sure I've thought about or could answer because it's in, it's in with Breakfast Club and Weird Science and flicks like that, that were just, they're just so iconic. Like just to give you an idea. So when I was growing up with my pack of friends, right, you got that circle of friends where there's, you know, five to 10 of you that always hang together pretty much nonstop our conversations would revolve around quoting, you know, quotes from these movies. And Mm -hmm. Ferris Bueller was, was no exception to that. I mean, it had so many uh, one-liners and things like that. So it's really hard for me to, to place it, but it's definitely got to be in my top, you know, my top uh, three, four, five movies from John Hughes. Sure. I mean, you think about it. I mean, he wrote Vacation, the original Vacation. He wrote Mr. Mom, uh, you know, and then he started directing, you know, Breakfast Club, Weird Science, Pretty in Pink, Ferris Bueller, some kind of one. I mean, there's plain strains and automobiles. I mean, there's so many. Um, but yeah, the Ferris Bueller, I think, always resonated uh, with people. So we'll, we'll go with Sonny on this one. Did you ever skip school? I'm, I'm assuming in high school. And if so, what was the best thing you actually did on your unofficial day off? If you never skipped school, if you could go back, what would have been? You know, what would you have done if you had your your day off? Yeah, I never pretended to be sick to get out of school and I never skipped school. Um, I was pretty lucky. We could leave campus when I was in high school. Uh, my The high school I went to closed down after I graduated. But my favorite restaurant was a hot dog palace, which was like literally a block away. And then there was an adult theater right next to it. So, <laughs> you know, you could kind of do whatever you wanted. So, uh I didn't really have a reason to skip school. If you could go back, what would have been your, what would you have done? Yeah, I would have most likely skipped school to, you know, maybe go to a baseball game or a football game possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the only other reason I would have not went to school is, let's say I went to a concert and the concert like got out late or whatever, and then I don't go the next day because right. I don't feel good. But I just was never in that position. I graduated early, so I didn't really honestly think about it i just figured you had to kind of go to school whatever you're supposed to okay steven i think you're more of a truant what, did you take any days off unofficially <laughs> i think the statue of limitations has run out so <laughs> we're just amongst friends here because we don't want to share this with anybody else <laughs> uh yeah so i probably skipped school my junior year in high school a total of 25 times (laughs) (laughs) and almost ended up with uh, summer school that year uh, because I was amongst people that encouraged that kind of uh, truancy, as you call it. Uh, (laughs) I think I can tell you in particular, there was one time where uh, I skipped school because went to a concert the night before, but there were a lot of times where I hung out at the arcade And we had kind of a part-time job, so we would just go in during the day and work 
that part-time job at the arcade. There was also a time I can remember specifically where I pretended I was sick uh, and just uh, skipped school so that I could stay home and listen to the Pyromania album <laughs> because I love that album so much. But we had a friend at the time that had his own car and that was kind of rare in high school. So he had his own, his own car and he had a deep voice. So he would call and call us out. He would call <laughs> the, uh, the principal office, whatever you call it and would call us out. So it was like an excused absence, but the parents were none the wiser. So it was just like Cameron, except you didn't have the computer to take your absences absences down to nine times. So a hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> so if, if the Ferrari wasn't your choice car, uh, just like Ferris and Cameron, what would have been the ideal car you would have spent your day off in? And now I'm assuming that for Stephen, he would have, he would have used Bandit's car from Smoking the Bandit. But first, we'll we'll uh, <laughs> we'll ask we'll ask Sonny, what would have been your ideal car to spend your day off in? Oh, it would have definitely been a Lamborghini, or <laughs> it would have been the T-top Trans Am. There's no doubt, or you know, a T-top IROC or something like that. Yeah, uh, those were the hot cars, and you know, Smoking the Bandit, even though. I graduated in the mid '80s. It was still hot, even though it kind of started in the early '80s. Right, right. How about you, Steven? I gotta have a convertible Cobra, man. <laughs> I gotta have that Mustang, that Cobra uh, convertible uh, with a, you know, one of the uh, man-made Detroit uh, muscle engines in it. That's got to be uh, what I would would take. Right. Okay. So we'll get into the film. So we'll start with Steven. Who's your favorite character in the film? character overall i mean look it's easy to say ferris is the is the top character but there's so many little characters and you gotta keep going back to ed rooney <laughs> I mean, that's right ed rooney definitely helps this movie in and uh so many ways so i really love ed rooney well he's the heavy he's the villain you need a right, good villain. yeah yeah you gotta yep. love a good villain right yeah, I got to go with the underdog here. I got to go with Ed Rooney, right? Because <laughs> Ferris has figured out everything, and he's thought of everything, and you just start feeling bad for the guy that he keeps losing, and he keeps trying. So, I don't know. It's hard to go against the underdog for me. Yeah. I think as when I was growing up, of course, I love Ferris, and, that, and you know I couldn't help but love Ferris. But as I got older, I appreciated Jeannie more, Jennifer Grey, because she's got some really funny scenes, and she plays that kind of that snark so well. And then as you get older, you also understand why she gets pissed off that Ferris gets everything, and she gets the short end of the stick. That's, uh, that's pre-nose job. Uh, it Jennifer is great. <laughs> and, and she looked, I, I always thought she was, she was very attractive. I don't know why she, she got the no job. It ruined her career too. Yeah, yeah. Same, same opinion I have. So we talked about favorite characters. I, I, this might be too hard. What are some of your guys' favorite scenes? And, and we'll just, you guys can just rip off that Sonny. Oh, there is so many. Uh, the, the restaurant scene is so perfect because <laughs> of how Ferris is kind of dealing with the whole situation. The whole you know, you go to the only restaurant where your dad happens to be. So that cab scene right there is huge. And Rooney being at the house and all <laughs> the things that happen at the house, like it feels a little bit like Home Alone. Right. So uh, that that was kind of fun. There's just so many good scenes. But those are I mean, this is one of those movies that I'll just no matter where it is within the movie, I'll turn it on HBO or whatever and just do work 
with that movie in the background because mm-hmm. no matter what scene it's at, I know exactly where we are in the movie. Right. And it's funny you mentioned Home Alone that, of course, was written by John Hughes. Right. So, uh, Stephen, some of your favorite scenes. Yeah, I, I'm going to 100% hearken on what uh, Sonny just said. Any time uh, it's on in the background, it's just it doesn't matter. It just sort of plays out. Some of the scenes that stick out for me is, one, I really, really love the scene with Cameron trying to decide whether he's going to go over to Ferris's house or not. I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. He gets out and then the camera shot, uh, which is blurry with him in the background, throwing his keys and stomping up and down. I mean, that is a, that is just a well shot. Awesome scene. I, I love the scene with, uh, Jennifer gray, uh, karate kicking, uh, Rooney (laughs) in the face. I die laughing with that. I of course love the scene with the, uh, the nurse, uh, nurse, coming over, Mm -hmm. uh, to try and make Ferris feel better with, uh, Louie Anderson. I don't know if you caught that Louie Anderson, is uh, the guy that's, uh, at her side there. And, um, just so many great scenes, just like Sonny said, the, the one where he mistakes, uh, the, the, uh, uh, woman in the arcade and she spits, you know, Pepsi all over him or whatever. Uh, just so many great scenes. Well, it's funny about the car. Like I, I repeated that over and over again when I'm just like, okay, I'll go, I'll go shit. So yeah, <laughs> he, his aggression is so perfect in the, in that scene. let obviously you guys are way into music. We have to talk about the soundtrack. John Hughes was always kind of a master at picking songs that really weren't popular at the time with the exception of one song in this film, which really introduced me to the Beatles. Uh, so much so that when I was a kid, I, I really thought Matthew Broderick was singing. And my dad had to break the news to me that it was, uh, some famous band from England. So, <laughs> Uh, how do you guys feel about the soundtrack? Do you like that all these, I mean, most of these bands really never, I mean, with the exception of maybe, I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, none of these bands really became big after this. I mean, it's like they're known for this film. So how do you guys feel about the soundtrack, Stephen? Uh, for me, John Hughes has much better soundtracks than what is on Ferris Bueller in terms mm-hmm. of the soundtrack itself. However, and this is a big however, there are probably two, maybe three songs within this movie that I would absolutely consider iconic movie music moments, which mm-hmm. we'll get into on the Grown Up Rock episode. But uh, yeah, I mean, overall, the music fits the movie. Uh, and so it's just, you know, um, it's good. It's not anything that I think is over the top. It's just uh, it's good. Yeah, I would say one one song that I really liked um, as a kid, and I still liked it, is Beat City, where they're, they initially take the Ferrari and then they go on to the, mm-hmm. the highway. It's just like a perfect upbeat song and kind of got that jangly guitar. How about you, uh, Sonny? How, how did you feel about the soundtrack? And are there any songs that stand out for you besides, the obviously, the obvious ones that we'll talk about? Yeah, that's my only criticism of the movie is the soundtrack. Mm. Because the, the, only, the three songs that everybody kind of talks about are the only three songs that honestly matter. And I think John Hughes could have really had a number one soundtrack here if he would have picked the right songs and actually released a great soundtrack, right? Mm-hmm. And this, uh, I was trying to figure it out. It's very possible that's the first Beatles song I ever heard, and it was in a Ferris Bueller movie. 
I yeah. it was Ferris singing too. And I'm like, what's that <laughs> song? And somebody goes, that's the Beatles. I'm like, who's the Beatles? Well, Sonny makes a great point in the fact that if you look at a lot of the other John Hughes movies, um, when you talk about, and I'll just throw like a movie like Pretty in Pink out there. Right. When you when you look at a movie uh, like Pretty in Pink, which for me, Pretty in Pink is a much lesser movie than Ferris Bueller. But when you talk about it, you talk about that soundtrack because the soundtrack to Pretty in Pink is pretty epic mm-hmm. uh, versus something like Ferris Bueller. So I think that this movie would have um, prospered greatly with a better soundtrack. I do agree with that. Mm-hmm. No, I agree that this soundtrack wise, I, I don't even think it was released as an official soundtrack, um, w- which I find interesting and. And, uh, yeah, my dad, in addition to telling me that it was the Beatles, was also like, well, you should also listen to the Isley Brothers because that's the better version because he was, of course, into soul and, and R&B. Um, do you guys actually enjoy any other Matthew Broderick movies? I mean, there's one obvious one that came out before, which was War Games. Um, but after Ferris Bueller, are there any films that, that uh, stand out for you? Sonny? Yeah, some of these movies, most people probably never heard. Uh, you know, everybody's heard Biloxi Blues. I like that sure. movie. Cable Guy, most people have heard. I really liked Family Business, mm. and I really liked Tower Heist, which was way later, <laughs> right? So the problem is, is that I think he started doing theater type stuff, and that's kind of out of my bang zone. And wasn't he in the Music Man when I turned that movie off? Wasn't he? I probably God damn that brutal fucking movie! Good lord, that movie was bad. I think one that people forget about that was right before Ferris Bueller's Lady Hawk, which is kind of a fun fantasy film. Uh-huh. How about you, Stephen? Yeah, so Lady Hawk uh, is one that kind of gets overlooked. And and uh, oddly enough, although a lot of people don't talk about it, uh, and Sonny just mentioned it, Biloxi Blues, I think, is a fantastic movie. I really enjoyed that movie. Uh, Glory, uh, mm. which is obviously not a, a comedy, but... Uh, no you know, a well, well acted movie. One of, I think that's one of Denzel's first movies, isn't it? Um, it, it's up. I mean, it's one before he got famous, but yeah, you definitely, definitely Morgan Freeman. But in the vein of this war games, I definitely, uh, saw war games in the theater and, and, uh, enjoyed that. So mm-hmm. he was in the freshman with Marlon Brando. Uh, um, and actually, Biloxi Blues mentioned, Sonny mentioned that he got on the stage. He actually, prefer, I think, I don't know if it was before or after, he, he was in the stage version of Biloxi Blues as well. So he, he, I think theater was always in his heart. I mean, let us not forget Inspector, Inspector Gadget. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> well, we tried movie. to. <laughs> I like that movie. All right. It's good talking to you guys. Oh, well. <laughs> Well, so would would you guys have this is actually a perfect segue? Would you guys have changed any of the actors actresses in in these roles? And uh, if not, would you have changed anything in the film, or is it just like this is a fun ride? This is a perfect movie. I want to change anything, Stephen. Uh, for me, no. I mean, it's kind of hard to look back at a movie that you endear so much and and is such a staple of your memories and your uh, your youth, you know, so I, I don't think so. And in fact, when I look back at some of the actors and actresses that they chose for certain roles, I'm not sure they could have done any better. I mean, honestly, could they have picked a better secretary than the oh, lady? Yeah. 
than the lady that's Rooney's uh, secretary because, you know, she's probably most memorable for planes, trains, and automobiles, right, yep. from that Edie scene. Ma- Edie McClurg, yeah, she's like a John Hughes staple. She always use her in a perfect scene. Yeah, and he does. He he uses a lot of the same people around this period of time for his movies. And one thing that uh, maybe I didn't recognize early on in his movies, but now uh, as I watch rewatch some of his movies as an adult and looking back, there's um, a lot of themes within his movies that are similar. Uh, one that stuck out to me, especially with Ferris Bueller, is even though Ferris Bueller, for the most part, is pretty a, much a lighthearted movie, there's a lot of darker, deeper, like uh, parent-child issues, right? With mm-hmm. with uh, um, Cameron, uh, with Cameron, and then if you look back at like Breakfast Club with uh, with Judd Nelson's character, there's a lot of sort of dark undertone shit with that, right? Oh, absolutely. I think that's what the brilliance of John Hughes. He was able to kind of hone in on that teenager angst, especially in the 80s. And uh, and that's why I think these films all resonate with people. And they're all timeless. These A lot of these are timeless um, situations that, that never went out of style. I think it's interesting that, you know, Molly Ringwald was considered to play uh, Sloane. Uh, you know, she was one of uh, John Hughes's favorites. And then Anthony Michael Hall playing Cameron. I just don't think that would have worked, even though they worked in other films. Sonny, how, how would you answer the question? Is there any character you would have changed or with a different actor or actress? And, and would you have changed anything in the film? Let's do the film thing first. I didn't sure. need the musical that it kind of turned into a musical when Ferris is in the parade. Mm-hmm. Right. But then saying that, I love that they added that the dad was dancing in his office. Right. So, <laughs> right. I don't know if I would change anything in the movie, but I didn't really need the musical theater thing. Mm-hmm. When it comes to changing the act- actors or actresses, Molly Ringwald could not have pulled off the sexy that no. Mia Sarah pulled off. And there's no way Emilio Estevez can pull off the nerd that Alan Ruck pulled off. So then, right. let's put that to bed. Anthony Michael Hall, char- there's a tar- charm issue for me. Jim Carrey would have been too nerdy to play Ferris. John Cusack could have probably done the rebel thing, but he doesn't always come off as super charming. Johnny Depp, I don't know if he could have sold the whole strategy thing because he comes off as a pretty boy. Tom Cruise or Michael J. Fox, I they probably could have done really well in this one. I can see Michael J. Fox pulling this off. I was going to say, I could see, because I didn't look at uh, any of these lists of who was considered, so this is all like new information to me, but I'll be honest. I bet John Cusack could have pulled off the, um, uh, Alan Ruck part, the Cameron, uh, role. I think mm-hmm. he probably could have pulled that off pretty good. Yeah. And, and going back to kind of side characters, of course, you know, Edie McClurg kind of has a bigger role, but side character wise, Charlie Sheen kind of steals the show at the end and wraps everything up. And he's perfect for that. He was oh, yeah. perfect for that role. Yeah. And I've already discussed this, but Sheen basically stayed up for, countless days which probably wasn't a stretch back then for him so when he looked exhausted and strung out like it was legit but it's such a great scene had he done anything before that oh yeah 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 okay so he was already a name before that one little scene 
Right, right. Which was actually what was kind of cool about movies back then is you would have guys that were kind of up and coming, but they would take these one off roles for directors they really respected, you know. So Ben Stein plays one of the most boring teachers in the world. You know, Ed Rooney is the worst <laughs> dean ever. Uh, yeah. What were some of the worst teachers you guys ever had in your history? Uh, we'll start with uh, Sonny first. Yeah, my English teacher in high school was she miss Isom. She was God, she was so tough to listen to. So I think the story I normally tell is I was listening to Love at First Sting my entire 10th grade <laughs> of high school because uh, it came out in 84 and I had it in one earplug and coughed during the automatic reverse when the tape switched. And that's what I did in English class because I could not stand listening to that. <laughs> Stephen. <laughs> so I don't know about the worst teachers I've had, but I've had some pretty good teachers uh, I remember in particular my 10th grade year, a science teacher that I had, his name was Mr. Andrews, and he was he was unbelievably positive. He just, everything out of his mouth was so positive, and he was so bright and sunshiny, and uh, it was just a joy to have him as a teacher when... I mean, honestly, school was never really my thing. I was never, I didn't love it. I didn't make horrible grades. I didn't make great grades. I was kind of, I don't know, maybe a little better than mediocre, uh, mm -hmm. as a, as a high school, uh, student. Uh, and so just any time you had what you would consider, uh, a great teacher, it kind of stuck out for you. Right. Mm -hmm. I so, will, uh, I didn't mention this on my part, but I will say I had a second grade teacher who was aptly named Miss Moody because she was incredibly moody and she was suspended for a year for hitting a kid. So, yeah, good times <laughs> back in the 80s. Damn. Yep. Yep. I did survive. I think I got hit once, but I probably deserved it anyway. I, so, yeah, <laughs> I got I get hit all the time at the dean's office. They paddle, oh, yeah. me. They paddle <laughs> you in high school. <laughs> uh, no, I think by that time they, that that corporal punishment was out, but yeah, uh, sure they wanted 60s ended that. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> All right, so we'll wrap this up with: uh, Do you guys ever wish there was a sequel? Or are you happy that just like Ferris end that the movie ends the way it does? And we'll we'll start with Stephen. Uh, I'm surprised they never made a sequel, but I'm glad they didn't. I think yeah. this is a a good movie just to stand alone. I'm surprised they didn't try to remake it many years later. You know. Well, I don't think any John Hughes movie has been remade. I think the closest thing they ever came like to an offshoot was maybe doing a TV series, which I believe they tried with Ferris Bueller, and they definitely did with Weird Science. I think Weird Science was the most successful. Uh, but yeah, how about you, Sonny? Yeah, these kind of movies, if you don't do it right away, leave it alone. Yeah. Like Top Gun, this new Top Gun movie that came out, they did it really, really well. Yeah. So if you're going to hit on something that absolutely works, great, but... Otherwise, just leave it alone. Mm -hmm. Well, again, guys, thank you for doing this. You guys are always special guests when, when you come on. So it's nice to get your, you know, both at once. And uh, of course, the listeners, you're hearing this first, hopefully. And so jump over in a couple days or, you know, if it's already happened in a couple days later to the Grown Up Rock podcast. And we're going to talk about our favorite songs and specific uh, iconic movie scenes. We each have a top five list. Plus, we have tons of extras we can talk about uh, because there are countless songs and movies that just make certain scenes better. So thank you guys again for doing this. Thanks, Bron, for having us. We appreciate the uh, tie-in. Yeah, always a good time. Man, we should all get shirts that say Bueller. Bueller. 
<laughs> as simple of a scene as that was, how great were those scenes? I mean, there's it's not just the Bueller scene either with Ben Stein. It's the Bueller, it's the Holly Smoot act, or the <laughs> you know, just so many uh great scenes with Ben Stein and such a simple sort of idea. Yep. Voodoo economics. Yeah. What is it? Voo? Anyone? Voo? Do? <laughs> economics? <laughs> Thanks again, guys. See ya. If you are ever in the San Francisco Bay Area and still love collecting or renting DVDs or VHS tapes, come check out Captain Video and San Mateo at 2837 South El Camino Real. Captain Video is open six days a week and closed on Wednesday and one of the last traditional video stores still running in the United States. New movies you can rent for $2.99 a day. Old movies you can rent for $2.99 for five days. And if renting isn't your thing, you can also purchase anything you find in the store. Be sure to tell Ira that you heard about Captain Video from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. Happy renting and happy collecting at Captain Video. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.